0: Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Blocks. That's right, it's
1: a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, vampires, sweet bacteria, and bubbling plasma. In addition, Nobel Laureate Professor Amartya Sen will join us to discuss developmental economics. And we'll find out what mitochondria is. So stay tuned for all this plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. <laughs>
0: Back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm
1: Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank?
0: Pretty good, pretty good. It's another fine week, huh?
1: It is. I mean, it's amazing. I'm ready to play the game that they call science. Everybody wins. Except for the losers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, are there are there any losers in science? I don't know.
0: Well, in the end, uh, the probability of our survival goes to zero. Yeah, right. That is
1: correct. Yes. Well, maybe the experimental subjects of some scientific research—they could be. Well, I guess they're the winners in the end. Yes. Unless they're getting the placebo.
0: <laughs> we must find the exception that proves the rule.
1: Do we have a rule?
0: Well, so do you feel like it's getting a little bit warm in here?
1: I'm feeling a little bit excited, excited? a little bit edgy.
0: Ooh, edgy. You think
1: it's because of global warming? Well, yeah, I guess so, or it could just be that the uh, air conditioner's knocked out.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right.
1: You know, it's public school. Right. <laughs> but- and I'm going through menopause, so.
0: <laughs> but uh, a recent paper that just came out in Science suggests that even if we stop spewing any more CO2 into the atmosphere, the temperature of the Earth is supposed to go up another half a degree Fahrenheit by 2100.
1: So even if we just completely stopped emitting greenhouse gases, yeah, we'd still have global warming. Yes. Is that just because uh, it's going to take a little bit of time for the Earth to recycle all the greenhouse gases and uh, get us back to normal?
0: Yeah, it takes uh, quite a bit of time, actually, for the CO2 to equilibrate, especially uh, with the ocean as one of the major factors since it does absorb a substantial amount of CO2. So in their uh, models, what they did was they assumed that we had stabilized the uh, CO2 levels five years ago. And, uh, in fact, in the last five years, we just become putting more and more and more. Okay, so so
1: they're basically just subtracting out the amount that we've put in now to see the incremental amount that's been added. Right,
0: right. And this is all due to this um, concept called thermal inertia, Mm -hmm. where uh, the global temperature would rise because um, the oceans respond slower than atmosphere does to the uh, CO2 emissions
1: I see okay so um, but then eventually of course the uh, the uh, global environment will re- reach gain equilibrium and of course then uh, supposedly uh, cool yeah. I
0: mean um, you know that's the if question uh, one of the major concerns is the uh, the so-called thermal haline uh, current I, I think some of you if you've seen a Day After Tomorrow they talk about it but it's actually a real thing
1: <laughs> and of course everybody knows we get all of our information from The Day After Tomorrow
0: right <laughs> But as there actually is um, substantial evidence is just that if you shut it down enough, you could actually end up screwing the uh, the weather cycle permanently hmm. since hmm. it can just shut down if you put in too <coughs> much uh, Fresh water that's melted into it. Mm. And then we may then be really screwed. Intriguing.
1: Well, you know, another article I read recently was uh, an argument that, in fact, all the global warming has uh, prevented us from having an ice age, which is long overdue.
0: That's very possible, but ice ages happen on the order of, what, hundreds of thousands of years? Over. Right.
1: So, I mean, but uh, I guess the way this guy was talking about it was that uh, if you actually look at from the time when men start actually uh, emitting gases into the atmosphere, which is actually around the time when we first started domesticating animals and Farming, Right. That's actually when we started changing, actually, the global environment. Right. And so if you look back to that point, uh, it's been thousands of years. Uh-huh. And, in fact, uh, we are, in fact, several thousand years overdue for the beginning of an ice age. So right. So it seems to correlate.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's no reason to uh, disregard such theories. Yeah. But perhaps, you know, maybe we should be a little more careful with our use of resources.
1: Uh, you know, how many Earths do we have? We can <laughs> <all> <laughs> If we burn this one up, let's just go uh, move to um, Mars. Mars. Uh, Jupiter sounds nice. <laughs> it's a little bit
0: air, you know. Yeah, you know. <laughs>
1: We can live in Cloud City, yes. just like Han Solo. Ooh, cool.
0: Um, so, anyways, this was a uh, work that was published by the National Center for Atmospheric Research and um uh, account in science just last Friday.
1: All right, Frank, uh, what did you dream uh, you could do when you were young?
0: I dreamt I could fly.
1: Wow. Did you ever dream you could be a vampire? No, I'm not really into blood. <laughs> Well, it turns out uh, vampire bats, I guess, uh, like you wish you could fly, mm-hmm. the vampire bats wish that they could run.
0: They could run. Well, I also tasted blood, but that's nothing to do with uh, my dreams, though.
1: Oh, wow. Whose blood did you chase?
0: Well, I was uh, bleeding severely in my nose and it just started draining into my mouth.
1: Ah, uh, okay. That's tasty.
0: <laughs> yeah, very salty, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: nutritious, too. So it turns out, actually, bats are uh, the only mammals that can fly. Uh, but, of course, this comes at a cost because uh, they're no longer able really to uh, move around on the ground by walking or running at all. So uh, researchers have wondered for quite some time whether or not in fact they've totally given up this ability or there's been sort of apocryphal tales that in fact vampire bats might actually be able to walk on the ground and run and sneak up to their uh, prey. Wow, they're almost like humans, huh? <laughs> well, what would you expect from a vampire bat, really? And the the rationale behind this is actually that uh, the vampire bats have started to g- grow in regions where they're domesticated animals like cows. Right. And uh, it's just easy to actually walk up to a cow and bite it. <laughs> so. Well,
0: next time I'm hungry, yeah.
1: So actually, this was interesting. Researchers actually uh, put these bats on some treadmills to uh, look to see if they could actually run and uh, keep up with the uh, treadmill yeah. and what they found in fact was that as they slowly increased the uh, pace of the treadmill and the bats started walking first on all fours and then one foot after another until it reached a speed of about 1.8 kilometers per hour which is you know, not really fast but it's uh, fast enough for a bat. So
0: on two feet? or On two feet, yeah. Wow. Pretty soon they can also cook like humans. <laughs> you know, it turns out humans are the only animals that can cook. I mean, imagine, you know, having penguins that are cooking polar bears. I, I think i'd be afraid to be a polar bear at that point <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> especially to be uh, you know mauled by a group of penguins mm. good news for the vampire bats anyway and uh, this was uh you know uh, fun research and it was published in the recent edition of nature
0: Well, I have one more story from nature. Yeah, nature's all around us. <laughs> it surrounds us. It binds us. <laughs> it's not the
1: screwed batter. No. <laughs> it's the metachlorine count.
0: Yes. So this is Which
1: turns us evil in the end as we <laughs> find out. Mm, indeed.
0: This is a story by uh, a group of researchers at Illinois, uh, Ken Suslick and David Flanagan. And they've been able to recreate temperatures of up to 15,000 Kelvin in a bottle of sulfuric acid uh...
1: that's pretty warm uh, why would you want to hurt uh, heat up sulfuric acid to that temperature
0: uh, so you're not actually heating up the bulk solution You're actually uh, applying these sonicating waves Ultrasounds uh-huh, okay. And they cause little uh, gases to form Actually, they implant xenon bubbles in there And as it contracts and expands very, very fast Okay. So you're you know you're going from a diameter down to one-tenth of what it was before Okay,
1: so rapid uh, expansion and contraction Right,
0: and you would be able to get temperatures 15,000 Kelvin Which is about three times the temperature of the surface of the sun Right
1: So I mean, but this, these are basically local hotspots within the solution itself right wasn't this like a method that uh, they tried to use to uh, create
0: like uh, fusion in a bottle at one point it's one of the hopes that this kind of research will bring but the conditions for fusion require the creation of plasma gas which they have here but also the emission of neutrons Mm. which they have not detected
1: i think uh, they need a bottle of coke (laughs) because plenty of neutrons there oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) or is that sugar i don't know (laughs) maybe it's the caffeine
0: (laughs) yeah I guess this is one of the uh, more successful experiments where they actually show the actual temperature uh, based on the molecular spectra of the emissions.
1: Okay, wow. Well, so, I mean, this is uh, fascinating, I guess, uh, in case you need to superheat your sulfuric acid, <laughs> <laughs> which often I've needed, especially when I'm trying to heat up my uh, TV dinner for the night.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty safe. I mean, you don't put it in your hands. Yeah. It blows up. <laughs> <laughs> well, will probably just, like, fall right through your hand at that point. <laughs> Or what's left of your hat after. So this was uh, reported in a recent edition of Nature, volume 434. Okay,
1: and finally, uh, Frank, do you have a sweet tooth? A sweet tooth? Well,
0: hmm, I think my last cavity was about three or four years ago.
1: Oh, that's that's pretty good. Yeah. So I guess basically you just don't have any teeth anymore, right? Uh, At least, (laughs) you know, I thought I did, but... That's one way to get rid of cavities. Um, well, it turns out that bacteria as well, uh, they actually use sugars to uh, help them survive in the stomach.
0: Wow, you mean like uh, the stuff that's already in your stomach? Or? Well,
1: yeah, so actually, uh, you know, the stomach is uh, sort of a complex milieu of different uh, proteins and sugars. Right. And the uh, big question was, why? how could the bacteria actually survive in this environment, which is very hostile? Uh-huh. And, of course, the explanation is that they probably mimic the environment of the stomach somehow. So they produce a lot of mucus. In some ways, yeah. Actually, that's... Uh, uh, the reason why the stomach supposedly doesn't uh, digest itself. Uh-huh. But uh, the bacteria actually produce uh, certain types of sugars on their outer coat, right. which help them survive in the environment. Oh, okay. And it's actually quite interesting, but uh, the particular sugar they use is called L-fucose. And it was unclear whether or not this was essential for their survival, this particular sugar. So researchers actually tried to knock this particular enzymatic pathway out that makes L-fucose to see if actually it was important. But what they actually found out was that, in fact, these bacteria can now use L-fucose from the environment to make sugars to put onto their surface, right? Wow, they're pretty smart. Well, they are, in fact, quite slick. And uh, it just shows that they have many ways of uh, uh, surviving in our, oh, so pleasant environment, the gut. So the
0: L-fucose cannot be uh, derived from uh, the sugar we eat? Or the carbohydrates?
1: I guess there is a uh, sort of a host uh, way that we can actually uh, derive this sugar. Hmm. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the bacterium itself. They can produce it, and, of course, they can use it from uh, the uh, environment. Wow, that's pretty good stuff. It's, you know, the best stuff out there, you know. <laughs> so drink more l fucose to uh, help support the uh, lively flora in your, your stomach. Indeed. They'll appreciate it, <laughs> and so will you. Mm-mm. And uh, if anybody's interested in this, they can take a look either in their own stomach and ask the
0: uh, bacteria, or they can take a look in the recent edition of Science. And that's all for our look at current developments in rural science this week. This is Perfect Rox, you're listening to Here on 90.7... FM. Coming up, Professor Amartya Sen will join us to talk about developmental economics, so stay tuned. to Berkeley Grox. For many of us, we are introduced to economics as the social science of studying the consumption and production through quantifiable methods. Many schools of thought in economics rely on the prevailing notion that self-interest is the prime motivating factor of human activities. But does that paint a complete picture? Well, challenging these conventional assumptions is our very special guest today, Professor Amartya Sen, to talk about his work with incorporating human values into economics. He is currently a Lamont University Professor at Harvard, and in 1988 received a Nobel Prize in Economics. Professor Sen, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you very much. So, first of all, uh, in your field of development economics and social indicators, you are known for the concept of uh, capability. Can you explain this a little bit?
2: But I'm not sure that I'm known for- the concept of capability but it's something I've played around with Uh, certainly capability is really a kind of freedom uh, I'm not sure that I like the term very much. You know, uh, if you're concerned with the freedom that human beings have, uh, we have to ask freedom to do what? Now, there are various things which, uh, that we like doing or being, which we have reason to value, like not being hungry or being well-sheltered and clothed, being able to get uh, medical attention when one is ill, not being uh, subjected to escapable morbidity or premature mortality, or on the social side, taking part in the life of the community being able to mix with others and having a generally good life. Now all these things which we enjoy doing and would have reason to do and capability is the freedom to be able to do it and if you judge human advantage, the, the kind of success of human life in terms of uh, what you are free to do, what you are actually able to do, will you get to some kind of a concept of capability and then the question of relative weights of these different things that you I have reason to want to do Come into the story.
0: Uh, so similarly, there's this concept of social choice. What exactly is it and how does the human self-interest play with this?
2: Okay, well, that's a different uh, subject in which I've been very involved And in. You kindly mentioned the Nobel. My Nobel was primarily concerned nothing to do with capability but with social choice. Today, okay, I see. Uh, social choice is a very analytical discipline. It's concerned with the fact that in a society we find many human beings and we could have very different views of what we want to achieve in the society and still we may have to arrive at some kind of an idea as to some kind of an aggregate notion as to what will make the society better off or what the society ought to do. They are distinct questions, but they are still statements on behalf of the society as a whole. And it could be asked, how could you save society when society is just an, a, a figment of imagination? It consists of individuals and individuals have very different views. So it's a question of how, from the diversity of views that human beings in a society have, you can form some kind of an aggregate judgment about what make society better off or what's the right thing for a society to do? What would be the appropriate public policy to pursue? How would you judge whether the society or the economy is getting better or getting worse? So these are all aggregational questions. And Mm -hmm. the general discipline of dealing with aggregation over individuals is called social choice theory. And that's absorbed um, a lot of my time over the years, I'm afraid.
0: I see. And uh, what's wrong with top-down development? Uh,
2: why do you say that it will trump human rights in the long run? I don't think I quite say that, but uh, the uh, <laughs> I think the top-down, uh, what's wrong with it, is fairly easy to answer. That is, if you're thinking about... Decision being taken by only some people who happen to be powerful, whether they're military dictators uh, or uh, whether they're authoritarian rulers of one kind or another, to say that they should determine what would happen in this society. Well, There's a lot of things wrong with it because uh, we ought to know what human beings in the society living there want. So basically what's wrong with top-down is that it's not democratic, it's not participatory, it's uh, not something which takes into account the importance of... human beings uh, their their views their values and so on that's what is ultimately what's wrong with top-down view of progress now uh, there's also this that if the person who is doing the top-down thing namely the authoritarian ruler happen to be a very sympathetic man you might get what looks like quite a good process but there's no security that you will have it there's no guarantee and if that happens to be a nasty dictator then you might end up having a dreadful situation so I think in order to make sure that society goes in the direction in which members of the society would like it to go. You have to think about some kind of a democratic social choice procedure.
0: So what exactly is democracy? Is it simply having a system where people can vote, or is it a system where people are informed of the world around them? Is the U.S. really a democratic society?
2: Well, I think democracy is basically um, participatory Decisions about the state and and, and the government. Uh, the old term describing democracy as government by discussion is a is a good description. The of course voting comes into it, but mere voting alone will not produce a democracy because you need to be able to know enough to vote intelligently. Uh, and cogently. And similarly, you ought to find out what others are thinking so that you can take note of their perspectives and arrive at a position which reflects your presence in a society in which other people also live. So public reasoning, public discussion, communication and discussion are very central to democracy. Is the U.S. a democracy? Yes, of course it is a democracy. But, you know, you have to bear in mind that there's no such thing as just a perfect democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which democratic performance could be Improve the uh, that might include on one side, the rigour of vote counting. I think there have been a lot of problems with that, as you undoubtedly know. And also whether public discussion is sufficiently open or not, whether different points of view find it very easy to be aired, or whether there's too much of a dominance of one line of thinking, which make open public discussion difficult. These are the issues that have to be engaged in. And if you take any democratic country, whether it's the United States or my own country, India, you can suggest different ways in which the performance of these countries as democracy could be could be improved and, and bettered.
0: Uh, many people have strong opinions about globalization, either for or against it. Um, how would you define globalization and how would you assess its benefits and
2: costs? I think, the, uh, I think it's not really interesting to say how I would define globalization. Is not a term I like using. Mm-hmm. It's a disgusting term. But <laughs> you may <laughs> ask me what do I think, what people mean by globalization. I think there are three different things happening. Some people take the view globalization is basically closer contact between different regions of the world. And if you take globalization in this form, this is not a new thing that's been happening over hundreds, indeed thousands of years movement of ideas movement of commodities movement of people movement of technology movement of arts and science has been going on uh, from one part of the world to the other for um, many many centuries so in that sense globalization is just closer global contact Mm -hmm. and i don't really see how one could be really opposed to it because it seems to me openness uh, uh, has great merit which a closed society cannot really have. A second centre of globalisation is that of economic market-based relation, which is what many people mean by globalisation. Here, too, there is a long history of global trade, but what people have in mind is the particular type of expansion of trade that took place after the Industrial Revolution, and that has had a certain pattern of trade which have been established to a great extent at a time when there were particularly powerful economies like in Europe and North America and relatively less powerful economies as in Africa and Asia. So some people take the view that it's that pattern of trade which reflect the asymmetries of economic power, which is what globalization is and what they are very concerned with. Then there's a third definition where globalization looks at particular systems of organization like patent rights, like rules about what can be imported and what is covered by open general license, what can be what are covered by trade agreements and so on. And then very often people talk about globalization as the particular system of trade given by these institutions that we happen to have. Now, uh, how you analyze them, uh, globalization will depend on which of these definitions you're looking at.
0: Well, let's just consider first definition, uh, bringing people together. The
2: anti-globalization protesters are not protesting about that, you ought to know. Right. In but- fact, the glo- anti-globalization protesters are in themselves part of a globalized movement because when they're protesting in Seattle or Washington or Genoa or Prague or London, mm-hmm. they are not the local uh, people there making protest. They're coming from all over the world, and so uh, in terms of their anti-globalization activities, they are being a very globalized movement. So Mm. that's not, it's not a contradiction unless you take globalization I mean, it depends on which of these definitions you're using. They're really protesting about the second and the third definition of globalization. That is a pattern of trade which is well established with asymmetries between the rich and the poor. Uh, You mean the haves and the have-nots? haves and the have-nots, yes. And, uh, you know, there are various degrees of have and have-not, of course. And also the kind of established rules that govern trade, like uh, patent rights, uh, trade agreements, and so on. So anti-globalization protesters are protesting about that. They're not protesting, really, about the world being a closer place that people okay. can, uh, can link with each other.
0: Uh, so towards a sustainable world, one in which resources are used efficiently with little or no adverse effects to the environment, uh, what recommendations would you give engineers who want to bring more equity into the impoverished world
2: parts of the world? I don't think I'm going to advise engineers how to run that. No, I think it's very important to in talking about sustainability to ask the question, what is it that we are trying to sustain? And if the values that we want to sustain include, among other things, participatory decision-making, then one of the things we want to sustain is a public discussion and ability to think about the future, the threats, threats to the environment, threats uh, implicit in global warming. The threats to the uh, continuation of species in a way that is open to public discussion. And you can't solve this problem by engineers running around right. <laughs> ahead of everybody else, taking their own decision. So I think what you have to do is to, if I may answer your question, the engineers may have to listen to what, <laughs> what others want mm-hmm. and what is it that they really do want to, 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 to um, preserve and conserve. Sustainability is contingent on what is it that we are trying to sustain. Being from India and having
0: lived in many different countries, uh, what has inspired you in your work?
2: Well, I I don't know that there's one thing that has inspired me. I think it's fun to live in different, uh, be in different countries. I enjoy being there. I have a home in India still. My family is from Bangladesh, in Dhaka. Um, I lived half my life in England and I still have a home in in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. England. And I have a job in Have a home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, too, uh, at uh, and uh, around Harvard. So uh, you know, I I enjoy the variety of um, experiences that being in different parts of the world give you. Variety of point of view. You know, I think it's very easy. There's an old analogy in in Sanskrit literature, a term called Kupamandu. Kupamandu means a frog in a well. This is a story of a frog which actually happened to be born in a well. And lives its entire life in the well, Mm -hmm. and it has a world view, but the world view consists of the inside of the well. (laughs) And I think there is a real danger of leading a life of the well frog. uh, I think if there's anything, I would emphasize that it's fun not to be a well frog.
0: Uh, Have you considered taking a lead in the Indian economy?
2: Uh, No, I mean I do um, uh, write critical things about the government of uh, India's policies. Advisory roles I have never played. I've never advised any government because I've been lucky in living in societies which are democratic, where public discussion is possible. I lived in India, in Britain, and America, and I've never had any difficulty when I have any critique of any policy to publish it in any of the countries in question. I, I prefer to place my perspective in the in the point of view of uh, in for for the public. I also think that public policy comes best when it's moderated by public discussion. And I'm pleased when it has an effect. I was pleased, for example, that the budget placed last week by the finance minister, he did make explicit reference to some of my suggestions. Mm -hmm. But these were not suggestions to him as an advisor, but as an author. And in some way, that is the role that I've chosen. And I'm fairly contented with that role, I have to say.
0: And finally, are you optimistic about the future? It seems these days more and more leaders are expressing concerns about social inequity. For example, at the recent Davos conference, uh, Tony Blair, Bill Gates, and Sonny Bono had all uh, touched upon this.
2: Well, I think they're quite right to emphasize social equity. That's extremely important. Uh, but it is, uh, I think, the question about whether one is in general optimistic or pessimistic, I don't know. Temperamentally, I guess, perhaps I'm rather optimistic, tend to think that reasoning would prevail. And if you're reasoning about social equity, maybe that will have an impact too. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the way in which I would tend to think. That doesn't necessarily mean I've got it right every time in the past. I've often been more optimistic than I had reason to be. But one hopes that one is going to be right and, and that reason will prevail, and certainly I'm in favour of these issues, including social ec- equity, including human freedom. We began with capability, advancing the human capability of all human beings being advanced. All these are issues that, uh, in which um, a commitment, and public discussion and a demand, and when it's not happening, protest have value. And, you know, I'm a great believer that uh, interactive reasoning could be quite influential. So in that sense, I guess I am optimistic.
0: Professor Sen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Uh, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks.
2: Thank you very much.
0: And we were just talking to Professor Amarcha Sen, Lamont University professor and professor of economics at Harvard University. He's the author of many books, including inequality re-examined, and development as freedom. This is Berkley are listening to Here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what mitochondria is, so stay tuned.
1: now it's Cowboy Bob right here trying to tell you everything you need to know about getting power. Well, out here in the middle of the Texas desert, there ain't no power out nowhere because uh, all these governors, they just like taking them powerhouses out of the damn state. But you know, inside your cell, there's a whole lot of powerhouses, and them's called mitochondria, and they're the powerhouse of the cell, producing ATP, damn it! And that's,
0: that's the powerhouse of the cell. Thank you, cowboy. Boy. Strong the forces with you. But the force does not come from mitochondria. Many forces there are, Einstein said. But which is the strongest? If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but the force will be strong with you. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley
1: Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Terrace.